Now at Greentech here in the cafe talks, we have our next presentation coming up. The investor view of a new market developments for controlled environment agriculture. And this is a session which we would really appreciate your questions being sent into the studio through your browser. And we'll have a colleague here to moderate that session uh, just after we first speak to our host for the next few minutes. That's Ian Kansky. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining. Uh, my name is Ian Kansky, and I will be hosting today's discussion. Uh, I am chairman of FarmTech Society, an international association uh, for technology-enabled agriculture based in Brussels. I'm also director for the Center for Advanced Agriculture at Harrisburg University of Science and Technology here in Pennsylvania. Uh, today, we have an expert panel uh, on investments in the food and agritech sector. And, and we're excited to be here. Uh, Cindy uh, Van Rijswijk is an industry expert in fresh produce for Rabobank, the global banking and financial services company based in the Netherlands and a leading banking institution for food and agriculture sectors. She's also a former economist with Wageningen University in Holland. Shubang Shankar is managing director of Syngenta Ventures an investment arm of the Global Agriculture and Biotech Corporation, investing in agriculture businesses, both in early and later stages of, of growth. Manoj Sehu is an operating partner at Era Partners in the US, a global private equity investment firm focused on technology and infrastructure investments that help to decarbonize the economy. Uh, Manoj is also the former head of commercialization for Cargill in their $2 billion fermentation business unit. David Farquhar is the CEO of Intelligent Growth Solutions, a vertical farming technology provider based in Scotland, uh, developing projects around the world. He's also himself an investor with a background in the tech sector uh, prior to moving into controlled environment agriculture. So we're excited to have this panel to get to with us today. Thank you all again. Uh, and I wanna start by framing our conversation uh, for the audience at, at GreenTech. Uh, we'll be talking about developing new international markets for controlled environment agriculture as embodied in the Dutch horticulture industry in particular, uh, and uh, about what needs to happen related to de-risk these business models for farmers, for investors, and for the communities that they serve in, in new markets. Uh, around the world, demand for fresh, locally grown food is growing faster than ever. Uh, and the Dutch horticulture industry is obviously a, a powerful case study in the economics and sustainability of growing food crops in controlled environments. Uh, you have decades of success here uh, with well-proven business models that now need to engage international markets in new ways. Uh, at the same time, the U.S. represents a market with immense growth potential. Uh, the CEA industry, defined as both high-tech greenhouses and uh, vertical indoor farms uh, is still really a fraction of the size in the, U, uh, in the US compared to Europe, who has uh, uh, nearly a half a million acres or 200,000 plus hectares of vegetable greenhouse production. Um, but it is growing fast in the US now. And for example, just a dozen US companies, a dozen or so uh, in vertical farming uh, or in high-tech greenhouses have now secured nearly $2 billion of new investment just since 2014. So things are on the move. Uh, at the same time, it's also estimated that right now in the United States, there's over 
$1.5 trillion just in private equity investments looking for growth opportunities. Uh, the pandemic, of course, has caused a bit of a slowdown in this capital being invested, but it's expected to be moving quickly soon. Uh, and the pandemic has also uh, brought a whole new level of urgency, really, to, to investments into new infrastructure uh, uh, for localized, a lot of interest in localized food production uh, around the world. So, so this is a big opportunity for the industry, uh, but there are known risks and challenges to, to replicating these business models in new regions. And so today we'll be talking about what needs to happen uh, for the industry to address these risks uh, and capture more investment growth in, in going into 2021. And so lastly, for those in our audience who may not be familiar, let's say maybe from the US side, who may not be familiar with the CEA industry in Europe, uh, and specifically in the Netherlands, uh, greenhouse fruits and vegetable exports from the Netherlands is near 10 billion annually, uh, coming from an estimated 8,000 hectares or, or 20,000 acres of technology-enabled greenhouses. Uh, and so that, that should help to, uh, uh, for general reference. And, and, and with that, uh, we'll start our conversation today with, with a question for Cindy. Um, Cindy, Rabobank has obviously funded a lot of greenhouse agriculture businesses around the world. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of new markets like the United States uh, for the Dutch industry sector? And, and, and what are some of the key factors in, in what makes these businesses successful? Yeah, uh, let me start saying that Rabobank has financed about 85% of those 20,000 acres in the Netherlands, uh, 20,000 acres of glass houses. So we have quite some experiences. But it's not only a success story. The industry that is about 100 years old already started with growing grapes in glass houses, had lots of ups, but also downs. And one of the, the uh, difficult times in the sector was around 2008-2009. But that really forced Dutch technology suppliers to go abroad because before the time they were mainly working in the Netherlands. And at the same time also demand from abroad increased because uh, countries wanted to be more self-sufficient, wanted to be more interested in local food. So actually, it was a good kickstart for the technology uh, sector in the Netherlands. And in the beginning, it was sometimes difficult because in some countries, especially the growers, were not familiar with growing in a high-tech environment because it needs different skills. You cannot leave your yield up to the weather. You have to control a lot of variables because of all the technology. So, um, but technology improved, I think, over the time and became more uh, adapted to different uh, weather circumstances uh, all over the globe. So I think now there's a, a lot of opportunities, actually, like you said, and because in some parts of the US, maybe the climate was too hot or the, the humidity was too high. And I think now uh, technology is ready for that. And the one thing that has to be ready also is the grower. That's still kind of a risk factor that uh, you can't find people to run the greenhouse actually. But I think with, uh, in the future with autonomous growing, with software algorithms, it becomes easier. There's a lot of companies already pretty advanced in just having computers control the whole greenhouse or vertical farming. So I think the greenhouse industry is also learning a lot from what is happening in vertical farming 
which is even more controlled. So I think it becomes easier and also the risk factors become uh, less actually. Great, thank you. Um, and Manoj, uh, uh, Aero Partners' perspective is is really interesting here as well. You know, with your focus, you know, from the U.S. side, um, in particular on, on infrastructure projects and scaling businesses, um, it seems that so far in the U.S., a, a lot of high tech farming models to date are, are still kind of being seen as as higher, maybe in the higher risk category or more kind of venture capital territory. Um, how do you see the market drivers uh, and opportunities in the U.S. market? Um, you know, for, for let's say the Dutch sector as an example, and, and what are some of the key risk factors that the industry really needs to address for for funds like like yours? Uh, Manoj, sorry, I think you are muted. Yes, can you hear me now? Yes. Thank you. Uh, uh, thank you for having me uh, as one of the panelists. I really appreciate that. Uh, you know, at Ara Partners, we are one of the leading uh, PE funds in the ESG space, especially around the decarbonization theme. And we are very much committed to investing uh, with sustainability as a key driver in the ag and food. Now, personally, we see, I see a tremendous opportunities in the overall ag and food space, including what we call the controlled environment ag as the industry matures, because uh, that's important. And the pace, I believe, would be hastened by the disruptions in the ag and food supply chain uh, driven by the pandemic. So I see the industry more at an inflection point. And I see basically top three trends there. One is that the U.S. consumers, uh, especially specific segments, will continue to vote with their wallet around mega trends such as a sustainability. That was my first mega trend. The second is what is local and fresh, uh, and, and third is good, good for you, what's, what's good for our health. Now with this thing, see this accentuating, uh, as consumers will be more conscious about their choices in their food uh, they eat as a way to manage their health. And the pandemic probably accelerates that trend even further to the point that at a probably within the five to 10 years, you can see another mega trend, which is my hypothesis on the fourth one, which is food as medicine coming in. And that's where I see huge opportunities for the controlled environment agriculture to differentiate itself from the traditional ag. And each one will have its own place, but that's where the CEA industry can carve out a specific value proposition where it is solving a pain point, which is cannot potentially be addressed uh, fundamentally by the overall ag because it has some unique advantages. Now, you brought up a very valid point is that con today's environment, it's considered risky. Uh, now, I always want to think what three or four things need to be true for huge amounts of capital to come in so that they can generate market returns. First is technology, and I will elaborate a little further later. Second is the cost of production because that needs to be a important factor in terms of the delta between the traditional ag and the CEA ag. Third is the value proposition, because you have to differentiate. It cannot be a me too approach. And the fourth, the consumer is always the king. And so there has to be a demand pull in terms of the specific produce or specific food from it. And let me elaborate a little further. First is that I think the US CEA players need to be world-class in their adoption of technology. In my opinion, 
There is still a huge delta between the efficiencies of production between the top 10% of the global players, which includes some of the Dutch players, if not all of them, and rest of the pack globally. So US players have a lot of catching up to do. And these efficiencies in terms of the technology adoption can come from either better design of the environment because you're controlling the environment and you're not leaving it to the mother nature. Because we, I'm in Minneapolis and we had the first snow of the season in October 16. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't predict it. So think mm. of it. It's so hard to predict the weather, not just two days out, but, and we are all talking about predicting the weather even 20 or 30 years or 50 years, which is mostly around global climate change. So, so that's important because then you're able to better predict and because you have control over the environment, you can actually design the infrastructure. And even, I think Suvang will probably have a better and a lot of ideas about because most, my understanding, most of the sea technology is designed for outdoor ag, not necessarily for the indoor ag. And a plant starts from the sea environment comes in later. So I think there are a couple of variables. One is the environment, second is the seed, and third uh, is the infrastructure, which I believe uh, needs to involve. Second is the cost of production. I think, in my opinion, to gain the adoption and the scale where you need significant amounts of capital coming in, the delta between the cost of production between outdoor ag and indoor ag has to come down. Right now, I believe it's too high. And it is natural. You look at semiconductor industry, look at any industry, your cost curve is much higher and you follow the what I call the Moore's Law, where you go uh, probably logarithmically lower as your scale of production goes up. Third is the value proposition. It's still a niche market, in my opinion. And there are additional value propositions which the industry probably started kind of branding itself around and making its value proposition clear. One is food safety. I haven't seen a day in the newspaper or in a blog where there is not a food recall, either in a store, like a grocery store, and lettuce is the most common one. Second is the nutritional value. How about tomatoes with much higher lycopene, which is known to reduce heart diseases and cancer? We all eat tomatoes every day, but wouldn't it be wonderful to have tomatoes which you consume and you have a better health profile because you're eating those kind of tomatoes? Third is the improvement in self life. I tell you, I go to the grocery store, and sometimes if buy berries, by the time I reach my home, I felt they're gone. <laughs> Can't we have like strawberries or raspberries, which actually store for at least a couple of days, if not a couple of weeks? And that's where I think indoor ag can play a big role there. Last but not the least is the demand pool, because uh, in order to see, a, we need to see a sustained demand from the retailers, especially uh, for these kind of products. And in terms of the value proposition, I think the industry players need to be communicate. And there's nothing called over communication in the benefits of a controlled environment ag versus the outdoor ag. Now that's key to the messaging because you know, like uh, I'll take the case or in point that if you look, the sales of cranberry juice from uh, one of the major manufacturers has skyrocketed after a TikTok video. I, I think if you have not seen that TikTok video, you need to watch it. It's really funny. Uh, my daughter made me through that. So think of it like one TikTok video, two Facebook posts, three blog posts on Twitter can make or break an industry or make or break a product. So I think it's in today's environment, especially when you're dealing with millennials and the Gen Z, 
it's important to communicate in the language in which they understand. You cannot talk Spanish to a Greek person, and neither can you speak Greek to a Spanish person. And that's where I think the industry probably has to do to communicate so that everybody understands the benefit. Personally, I believe I'm very bullish on this sector and think that as the industry matures, there would be need for infrastructure investments to gain scale as well as to drive adoption. And that is where I see the opportunities for private capital to step in to enable what I call an ecosystem approach to control environmental act. I hope that addresses your question and multiple yeah. facets of it. It was a little longer, but I thought I'll address most aspects of it. No, no, that's great. Thank you, Manoj. And actually, I think you've, you, you've set that up fairly well. This might be a, a good time to, to ask uh, uh, Shabang, you know, uh, also from, from your perspective, similar topic, but, you know, you, you lead a venture capital unit for Syngenta, uh, who obviously could be a significant strategic investor uh, in a sector like this. Syngenta Ventures, as I understand it, hasn't made any investments to date directly in, into controlled environment agriculture. Um, but with, you know, this sector's need, obviously, for, as, as Manoj mentioned, for specialized crops and, and seed varieties. Uh, this is increasingly a, a significant topic. Um, but of course, CEA is still a relatively small niche, uh, as Manoj also said, in, in the context of conventional agriculture. What, what's your perspective on, on what's holding investors back? Um, and what would need to happen for this industry to, to really command more attention in the broader agribusiness equation? Thank you, Ian, and yes, thank you, Manoj. Many of the points I can, uh, you know, build upon. It's, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, there is, there are so many ways, and I think in which to answer your question. I'm not confident I'll cover all of them, but if you look at venture capital, and for a moment, let me, you know, uh, speak as a representative of venture capital. Venture capital investments have a certain profile that they must uh, return. And you know, the ideal venture capital you, uh, investment is something where you put in, let's say reasonably small amounts of capital, and then you know, uh, uh, support businesses that scale very quickly. Because the idea always is you know, to back a portfolio of businesses of which uh, you know, 70% are going to fail. You really need one to prove that it can scale in such a way that within anywhere between I would say uh, seven to maximum 10 years, it has to deliver for you an outsized return to pay off for all the failures. So venture capital itself has a certain profile that makes it unsuited for many types of investments. And I think here I am going against the empirical evidence because you know a lot of venture capital has gone into a controlled environment agriculture. But let's also just keep in mind that not all venture capital funds are the same. There are those who can write multi-billion dollar checks and there are those who you know tap out at a few million. Uh, but I think it's important to keep in mind the fact that the profile of returns uh, that venture capitalists are seeking is of a certain sort. To come to the you know question of why perhaps CEA has not commanded as much interest and perhaps as much um, venture capital investments as you might imagine, I think I think I would frame it like this. I think for many venture capitalists, uh, they are not sure what position will uh, controlled environment agriculture slash uh, let's call it indoor farming vertical farming just you know uh, for ease 
we don't know what position will it occupy in the world food system and because you we don't know that i think the question is we don't know how big can it be and there are certain structural issues which you know just make it seem high risk uh, and make it doubtful whether it can scale in the way that we just talked about firstly manoj mentioned cost competitiveness i think uh, you know the costs uh, incurred in the energy side of controlled environment agriculture especially vertical and indoor farming are really really high uh, if you uh, you know are using light or artificial illumination i mean just to compare sunlight is free and it will hopefully always remain free so how are you going to compete with the free sunlight land is also reasonably free even today i mean there's no marginal cost to continue using the land already under agriculture so yes you can economically you know make the cost of land zero but uh, for for vertical farming as well but essentially vertical farming has to come uh, is up against a really strong competitor the sun i mean the only way i i would say that to make it competitive is to follow the mr burn strategy from uh, the simpsons when he tried to block out the sun uh, so i think the best thing somebody could do for the sector would be to block it uh, block the sun what crops are uh, can uh, you know be addressed through uh, <clears throat> vertical farming um the world system needs calories and it also needs you know fruits and vegetables and ce has been very successful in fruits and vegetables but uh, the base load of the hu of human existence comes from calories so the way crops are grown their growing cycle will vertical farming ever see uh, you know expansion into the truly big commodity crops probably not so does that mean you know you're limited to a certain niche of the market it just has an implication on how big something can become what countries does every country have the potential for you know feeding its population with the uh, you know controlled environment agriculture or is it suitable only for certain types of countries let's say you know desert countries or countries that are closer to the poles where sunlight is the problem so i think all of this you know should just at least for me for, and many other venture capital investors poses a lot of questions that if we fund a business today can it deliver a 20 times return uh, uh, can it scale in such a manner that it's worth 20 times what it is worth today and i think this should call into question perhaps not the value of controlled environment agriculture which is always there but whether venture capital is the right asset class to fund this and in some ways manoj and i are you know playing table tennis so you know he's saying that venture capital is required and i'm saying more patient and longer term horizon capital is required but i really am not sure if venture capital is the right instrument to fund cea yeah uh, th- thank you uh, shubhaga it's interesting as a quick follow on to that you know you mentioned two things there one of course speed of scale and calculating speed of scale for that venture capital specific profile yeah. um and at the same time you know uh, uh, and, and i think that's maybe seen more as is vertical right or indoor we'll be talking with uh, david in a minute he i'm sure he'll have thoughts on this um but at the same time on the other equation we, we you know on the other hand in a sense we are talking a little bit about the dutch horticulture sector in particular which is using greenhouses uh, which is which are using uh, you know natural light and increasingly supplementing exactly. that with, with with indoor lights so looking for these right balances would you are you suggesting that that in a sense maybe um you know let's look let's look at the greenhouse sector in particular might that be a fit for let's say slightly more patient capital 
um, more of an almost looking at it as an infrastructure uh, type of investing that, that's a little a bit project more financing. Into, exactly. Yeah, project financing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I would actually not hesitate to extend that analogy even to a lot of vertical farming. I mean, how easy is it to scale and how big can it become? I think it will become. And I think certain niches perhaps within vertical farming are more suitable for venture capital than others. But, you know, just because you asked a question about what holds people back, I think it would be fair to say that these are the questions and risks that a lot of people have when they uh, hesitate to deploy venture capital for uh, you know uh, uh, controlled environment agriculture no thank you that, that's perfectly clear um uh, so yeah david a great great time to speak with you you are both uh, uh, both an investor um yourself and also the ceo of of a growing uh, a vertical farming company who's been fairly successful to date in, 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 in engaging U.S. investors. Um, you know, what caused you to go all in on the indoor agriculture opportunity coming from a you know, tech sector background? Um, and what convinces you that, that investors in the sector will be rewarded in the long term? Well, my, <clears throat> I had actually uh, retired before I took over um, IGS uh, back at the end of 2017. Um, I sold my previous business on a more than 11x uh, mul uh, multiple um, in um, uh, two, two years after taking that over. Um, and so, and I'd been sort of 25 years or so uh, in the tech sector, mostly in enterprise software. And, you know, it makes me shiver to think of ever running another enterprise software company that is differentiated that much from the competition. Just no way. Um, and there is so much enterprise software out there now that having any real differentiation is almost impossible. Um, I, as well as being a tech on, entrepreneur, I actually trained as a chef and I am married to a, a, a chef who still practices. Um, but also by habit, I'm a mountaineer. So... The environment means an enormous amount to me. And <clears throat> one of the guys who had been an investor in my previous business uh, is actually the son of the founder of IGS. And he phoned me up one day when I was happily gardening uh, and asked me to go and look at the IGS vertical farm. Um, and after four attempts to say no, he finally persuaded me to go. So I jumped on a train, landed in a place I'd never been before, had no idea what a vertical farm was, and was totally and utterly blown away um, by this thing which could solve possibly the biggest problem in the world. How the hell do we feed a population that's going to hit 9 billion people? Uh, so the opportunity is enormous. The compound annual growth rates in almost every part of CEA are projected by almost everybody to be huge. Uh, this system that sits behind me here, the IGS one, has zero emissions. So there are you know, so many things to like about this business in terms of size, scale. Uh, and I'm actually going to disagree with Shubang. I mean, we've attracted the three most active agri-tech VCs in the world by, uh, by volume of deals. Uh, so we have Seed to Growth, uh, S2G Ventures from Chicago. We have Osprey Ag Science from New York. And we have Ag Funder from Silicon Valley. Um, you know, they looked all around the world. They looked at all these ones you mentioned that have raised 200 million, 300 million. Uh, and said, they've all gone down a technological cul-de-sac. This is the right way. This is the answer. Most of them had never invested in Europe before, ne never mind Scotland. And so, you know, for me, I mean, I led the previous round um, uh, doing a, um, an er early stage note prior to the 
Series B. Uh, and for me, this is already proving to be a great investment. Uh, I do believe the VC returns are there, but I think the, you know, we'll probably quickly move on to a growth stage round because of the success that we've had so far. Uh, and we do see valuations heading in absolutely the right direction. So I think there's a place for risk. I think there's a place for growth stage. Um, and when you're building stuff like we are that is absolutely industrial scale, it, I agree with one point that it is eventually going to be seen as infrastructure. No, no, great thoughts. Thank you, David. And, and you know, we've got a, a little bit of time left here. I'd actually like to maybe uh, come back to, to, to Cindy for a moment. Um, what's interesting is obviously you've got uh, vertical and indoor farming capturing a lot of interest as as a, as a very you know as a technology play uh, um, in, in many ways, uh, and then you've also got uh, for maybe as as Minoj and and Shivanga has also mentioned different profile types, uh, different uh, types of capital, different profiles of capital, uh, looking for different risk profiles as well. So, you know. What, what is really interesting about this incredible case study of the Netherlands is, is for those investors that are not looking for quite as high returns and corresponding high risks, um, you have a business model here in the greenhouse sector that is very well established you know, for decades since you know, the 1980s. Um, and and you know, everyone that we've talked to in the association seems to agree fully that, that both vertical and indoor will have will emerge in its role in setting and setting and crop types and as will as will technology enabled greenhouses. Um, you know, but but Cindy, I'm, I'm curious as, as we go back to this central premise of a really great global case study uh, in, in, in controlled environment growing. What is it that you think and, and please anybody else as well jump in on this as, uh, uh, also, but where does the Dutch horticulture industry in particular need to adapt or modify their, their business models and really in, in terms of in order to really activate, let's say, the U.S. market uh, and, and, and different business models and investors here? What, what needs to change in particular? <laughs> I don't think anything in the technology has to change because the business model is proven in the north of Europe. Uh, for example, Dutch tomatoes compete with Spanish ones that have very low-tech greenhouses. So, and they're still able to compete, but it's mainly because retailers in most European countries just require uh, high quality, uh, hardly any pesticide use, safe food, etc. It was already mentioned by Manoj, I think. And outdoor tomatoes are a no-go, I think. I don't know any European country that's still eating outdoor tomatoes. Maybe people that grow them in their own garden, but no retailer buys them anymore. So they're all growing in some kind of indoor environment. But of course, there are many different ways you can grow them indoors. And I think you have to look at local circumstances, what fits best. And I think uh, the outdoor grown uh, fruit and vegetables, that becomes more and more difficult. Uh, let me mention the example of uh, strawberries. I think in the UK, but also in, in many other European countries, we grow them now on tabletops, often with plastic covers, sometimes a real greenhouse, a glass house. In the US, a lot of it is still grown in fields, but you get a lot of uh, diseases in the soil, it's not allowed in many countries to use fungicides to treat these diseases anymore. So it becomes more and more challenging. 
and consumers just don't want uh, yeah, all the chemicals on the strawberries anymore. So, and it also saves labor costs. So it's a lot of advantages, sometimes with very small investments actually. Um, so you don't need to have always the, the high end, but I think outdoor grown vegetables have a lot of disadvantages nowadays. But yeah, I think uh, consumers should realize this and also NGOs and retailers really drive this development in a lot of countries. And I think maybe US uh, is lagging a little bit behind these developments compared to Europe, but I'm sure this will happen as well in the US, that the standards will be just higher, especially on sustainability issues. And I think that is a really important driver for indoor production. Yeah, great. Well, a few minutes left here, you know, last question uh, um, for me, and then, you know, I, I, I start this, point this to, to, to you first, uh, Manoj, but then uh, and to the rest as well. You know, there, there's been a number of things talked about here in terms of the risk factors. Uh, one of them, Cindy, you mentioned it, Manoj, you mentioned it, is also the know-how. Um, the, the depth of, of knowledge in growing in these methods. So the kind of the master growers uh, knowledge, that, that's a big one. Um, but then from the investment perspective as well, or investors perspective, you know, one term that's often used uh, in the US investment world and community is, is uh, the, the concept of skin in the game, uh, which, which is really about risk sharing. Um, how do the people selling uh, a new idea share in the risk appropriately alongside those who are being asked to invest in it? Um, so, you know, I, I want to bring that up and, and also ask openly, you know, how would investors like to see or, or how do the technology providers, um, those selling the idea, um, how do they adapt their business models to, to really, especially if you're talking about moving a proven method from one region where it's well established to another region. Um, how do they adapt their business models to, to really demonstrate to investors they're, they're committed to the long-term success of each client and each, and each project? Yeah. Ian, I if I may, I, I, I must apologize. I really do have to leave. No problem. Um, but uh, thanks for inviting me and uh, um, lovely to meet the rest of the panels. Good to see you again, Cindy. Thank you very much, David. No, it's, it was good to have David's perspective as an entrepreneur as well as an investor. Uh, so I think, uh, Ian, to your point, skin in the game uh, is very common in multiple industries, and there is no reason for the CEA to reinvent the wheel. Uh, I'm an engineer by training long back, so first rule is that don't fix things which are not broken, and second, don't reinvent the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> and in my past life, uh, in this small family-owned company called Cargill, I was lucky to manage a pretty significant white biotech business. And the way we manage the skin in the game, because when large companies struggle for growth, um, that's a common theme. The way I got around it is by making minority equity investments where we would be an early investor, not in an angel round, but probably in a series B upwards, whereby we would take an equity position, not a majority, but a minority, which allowed the uh, investor or the company with know-how or the technology to be able to leapfrog the investment's growth potential so that the startup does not commit the same mistakes or doesn't go through the same learning curve 
and they are able to bypass certain mistakes, committing mistakes. And I always joke to my team, you are allowed to commit new mistakes, not the same mistakes. <laughs> so, so I found it interesting way because it allowed me to participate in growth in other industries or other geographies where we may not have always the best place or best competitive position to grow. Now, there's another way also benefit is that uh, it allows us to actually capitalize or monetize your know-how technology because there are always license fees or know-hows and by making the investment succeed, we were allowed to actually increase the value of our own investment. And, uh, and that's probably one of the things I do as an operating partner at ARA is that we just do not make financial investment. We sit down with the management team and through our network and our domain expertise, bring value to those portfolio companies in helping them solve some of the unique challenges or problems they have. The last thing I would say is that if you, I was in the Dutch horticulture industry, obviously, probably my understanding is that the Dutch industry is probably very mature with very limited scope for growth, uh, or the rate of growth is much lower. So where do you grow? You probably grow in countries which are similar in the regulatory landscape as Europe, or which have a huge demand for such kind of products. And one of the ways is through mergers and acquisition. And sometimes before you go on an M&A, it's always better to test the waters. And minority equity investments is a great way to test the waters and figure out which would be the winners, which may be the losers. So that's the second part I would say. Third is that I kind of see US as kind of 10 Netherlands, because there are 10 large population hubs, the metropolitan cities like New York, Chicago, LA, uh, so those kind of things. So each market has its own kind of unique characteristics. So there can be a lot to be learned from the Dutch example saying, how can you adopt the Dutch model? And I believe that the business model will be very similar, but there are always minor tweaks that can be made to each of these large metropolitan cities, which would be a market as big as the uh, uh, Netherlands itself. Like California is the fifth largest economy in the world. So if you look at five cities in California, it would be pretty large market. So I do not fundamentally believe that the CEA industry is going to hit uh, the glass ceiling anytime soon if it is able to execute on some of the things which needs, uh, need to be true. And I see no reason why it cannot, especially given the success stories it has had in European Union, especially in Netherlands. And you fly out of uh, Amsterdam airport, you can see them all over the place. Uh, you know, when you're flying out or, or landing into the, into the airport. So I, I'm a little bullish on this sector, being able to rapidly grow because the world will not have more land to grow the, grow, uh, the food we consume. In fact, the amount of land is probably going to go down because if you look at U.S. land available for ag, it has actually come down 10% in the last 30 years. It has not gone up. Whereas if you look at population, it's going to grow. So something has to change, or as Subhan said, there has to be a new pecking order in the food system where you feed 9 billion people, and, and we are scratching the surface on the sustainability front. And there is more room for the sustainability to be a driving force amongst the global consumer when they go out and buy their products. So that was a long answer, but I think there are different ways you can structure the skin in the game. And I think there are enough examples in the industry to learn from rather than reinvent the wheel will be my bullet point answer. 
Great advice. Thank you, Manoj. Uh, um, uh, sick of time here, we're, we're coming to a close, but uh, uh, Shubang, I'll leave the last word with you if, uh, if there's anything you'd like to, to add to that as well. No, absolutely. It was uh, uh, firstly a fantastic discussion and I think you saw different perspectives from different people. <laughs> Just highlighting that, you know, we're all stakeholders. So, you know, we're seeing different parts of uh, the elephant. I think I think uh, the world food system will need innovation and will need change to feed a, a, you know, a rising population in a manner that is perhaps not as environmentally costly and socially costly as traditional input intensive agriculture has been. And I think that is clear. Uh, there, are, there are no two ways about it. That's why we have a ventures capital unit in Syngenta to encourage innovation around these models. Uh, the uh, only question I would leave is that all of these ideas are fantastic and they all have a place in the world food system. I don't think any one of them will be a silver bullet and any no, no, no single one of them will be an answer to how do we feed a, a you know, world of 9 billion people. And the last thing I, and this is something perhaps Cindy can uh, you know, talk more about, but technology is not the only solution or a silver bullet to feeding five, uh, 9 billion people. We need to have some very hard conversations around the economics, the public policy environment, uh, you know, the sociology of agriculture and not just depend on technology because technology divorced from these contexts, I think is set up for failure. So I see this as the beginning of not just technology innovation, but a lot of changes in the way the world uh, agri-food sector is set up. And it's fascinating to be a part of this environment. And I really enjoy these discussions. Excellent. Well said. Uh, uh, thank you all very much for, uh, for your time here. And uh, uh, we will see you again uh, for the uh, open discussion and open Q&A session uh, of this segment uh, on the 21st. Have a great uh, evening and afternoon, everybody. And we'll talk soon. Yeah. Thank you, Ian, for hosting this session. And my name is Gus Wannerfeldt. I'm joining you from the studio in Amsterdam for the Q&A session uh, following the discussion we just had. Um, I'm co-founder, board member of FarmTech Society, and I'm also uh, the project lead for the Field Lab Vertical Farming in the Netherlands. Welcome everybody on board. Uh, we have all the speakers uh, on Zoom right now. Uh, of course, David had to go, and he's now replaced by Ole from uh, IGS. Welcome, Ole. Um, uh, we have a few questions, and uh, also thanks everybody for sending in your questions, and, and uh, we'll try to answer them as best as we can. I'd, I'd like to um, start off with the, a question related to the last point that uh, also Shubang made, but I, I think everybody uh, hinted on. It's not just the technology innovation that we're looking at. We actually, in order to grow the industry, we need to build an ecosystem, and this ecosystem is, is also dependent on training, it's dependent on regulations, it's uh, dependent also on building a market. What role do you think that investors play in, in building that ecosystem? Does it have to come only from the technology innovators or can also investors play a role here? And maybe, um, Manoj, you can start off with uh, that one. Definitely. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be participating in this, this forum. Uh, one of the things I kind of strongly uh, believe in is that um, for any technology or any business model to gain scale, uh, capital is a vital component. Because without capital, industries would have a tough time scaling up the business model because capital is something which 
funds uh, these kind of innovations or growth. And for a sector to gain scale, it is important for the investors to gain a return on the capital, which commensurates with the risk. And, and that's where I think uh, uh, the role of investors come in for this industry to be higher up in the picking order in the world food system. Uh, there has to be a significant inflow of capital into the sector. And in today's environment where sustainability is slowly and steadily becoming a key driver, uh, I think attracting the right uh, type of capital, which is spaced and not looking for a quick exit uh, is important because this okay. industry is long, arduous and takes time to evolve over decades. Uh, look at the uh, traditional outdoor ag, and if you uh, probably asked any of our grandfathers to come to a farm, even outdoor farm, uh, they would be surprised how the farm in 2020 is different from a farm in 1950 or 1970. And it could not have been possible, but for the, you know, but the investment uh, by uh, companies and investors in overall kind of reshaping uh, the future of ag. I fundamentally believe that the ag and the food system is highly resilient uh, and has been able to tackle some of the uh, defining moments, including COVID, and turned out to be able to feed uh, sustainably the 9 billion people. But it is going to come under increasing scrutiny as well as increasing pressure uh, to be able to continue to do so uh, in a more sustainable way. So I see a fundamental role for capital to be able to enable these invest, enable this scale up and providing the infrastructure to be able to support uh, the industry to be able to scale and rise up to the challenges to be able to make a material difference in the, in the picking order of the world food system. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, any of the other panelists uh, would like to also pick this one? Um, perhaps Cindy? Um, yeah, I think that uh, capital is, of course, important, but I think there's other factors that may be more crucial for success uh, in the U.S. And I think that's the, the ecosystem that you mentioned uh, before. So without any customers that are willing to pay a decent price for the products, it's, it doesn't make sense to put capital in this uh, sector. There's also other challenges. I think uh, operational expertise is really important and still needed, despite all the technology there is. And also other challenges like labor availability, we're not able to automate completely, uh, even the most advanced farms, not yet. So and that, those are a few issues I think that are really, really important. Uh, but I think all of it together makes it, uh, can make it a success. Uh. Um, follow up on that, also a question from one of the uh, participants today. Um, traditional agriculture has enjoyed a lot of public support over the years. It, typically, governments have significant support pro and, and subsidy plans for, for traditional architect, uh, agriculture. Uh, related to just the, the availability of food, but also to the way of life of, of a rural uh, nation. Um, how does a new technology, a, a new way of farming, compete against something that is essentially not a level playing field? And this is a question from Kyle, Kyle Wagner. 
Uh, Shubang, can you say something about that? Yes, I think I think uh, that's a that's a great question, and I think that is one of the challenges that uh, you know, for many reasons, um, technologies do not have a level playing field with what exists uh, uh, beforehand. One is, of course, you know, uh, politics regulations. The other is, you know. Um, availability of uh, inputs that we don't pay for which i touched upon i think i think there it's it's difficult to say uh, you know uh, how to compete but my my the way i would look at it is that new technologies should perhaps uh, you know try and spend uh, convince stakeholders that they're not out there to displace or you know completely uproot what has happened in the past it's an addition it's an improvement and it just allows you know pressures that are existing in the current uh, food and agri system to be uh, taken away without uh, you know um, society bearing much uh, the costs so for example in europe you're absolutely right that uh, there is a coalition of uh, uh, uh you know farmers and they have they have a uh, weight in the political discourse as they ought to and that is true i think in almost uh, every country and there are you know uh, the political system i would say is not meant to maximize technical efficiency it's meant to you know keep everybody broadly unhappy uh, equally so i think i think we will never move away from that uh, from that uh, situation that's just the society that we live in and you know human society will not be driven from a technology first perspective at any point of time so i think the case should be made that every technology fits in to a certain social economic and political ecosystem it's not trying to you know create winners and losers it's not trying to displace everything that has gone on before and it is just trying to alleviate pressures that are building up in the system anyway and i think you win more you know you're more likely to win by making alliances than making enemies thank you uh, maybe also Ola, can you also look at this question from the perspective of a technology innovator you are fighting this uphill battle and how are you doing that so i agree very much with what shaban just said i think um, if we want to you know grow grow food or deliver food in um, in a way that is um, environmental friendly, you know, we have to change the way we do it. And I would agree that I see technology as a complement to what we are doing today. It will not replace the whole agricultural uh, kind of um, ecosystem. Uh, so it is um, it is something that add on to what you have today. I think we look at um, governments to help us kind of getting through the first barriers. If you want to be more, you know, if you look at uh, food security, food safety, we are dependent on governments looking at that in a positive way. But by the end of the day, by the end of the day, we equally also want to create a business model for our clients that stand on its own. Um, and I think we have the opportunity to do both. I mean, we, we are depending on each other to reach this goal. Okay, thank you. If I, yep. if I may add here, I think, yep. um, one of the things I believe needs to be true is for the indoor ag not to be a me too to the outdoor ag. And the indoor ag or the controlled environmental ag need to focus on a value proposition where they're solving some of the defining pain points in the ag and food industry. 
And that's when the concept of subsidies become irrelevant because there is a demand pool for those products. I don't think anybody in this panel or anybody outside is expecting in Controlled Environmental Act to compete with outdoor ag in growing corn, soy, or wheat. That's, we know that's not feasible. That's not economically uh, an acceptable solution. And that's where the subsidies uh, is the determining factor. But if you are growing a vegetable, a fruit, which has a nutritional value, I'll give an example, we talked about tomatoes. Uh, tomatoes have a nutritional component called lycopene, which is proven to reduce heart disease and reduce rates of cancer. You can always think of a controlled environmental ag in marketing a tomato enriched in high levels of lycopene as a way of food as a medicine and thereby reduce our healthcare costs overall. I'm just talking about a broad pain point, and that's where I think the indoor ag needs to kind of focus on to create a value proposition and solve some of the pain points in the existing ag and food supply chain, thereby making subsidies mostly irrelevant uh, if they are able to gain that demand pool from the customers. And um, in my opinion, that's where it needs to be true to be able to win over consumers there because the value proposition is a food safety and a food which is healthy for everybody. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, the drivers, I mean, when we speak to our customers every day, the drivers in Europe might be or are possibly different than, you know, what would drive a company or, an, or um, a grower to invest in our technology in the Middle East or in Southeast Asia. It's not this, exactly the same problem there is all over. So the, um, so the business case is different from, from region to region. What we solve in the different parts of the world is also slightly different. But by the end of the day, um, to solve the food mileage problem is is a problem that we all have globally. Okay. And we play a part of that uh, role. Thank you very much. We have just one time for one very short question before the end of the session. Uh, I'll need to summarize it. In your mind, and I'll give everybody the floor, what is the most important uh, fu uh, function that you're looking at in terms of technology readiness or uh, actually your perception of investment risk? Is it the level of technology? Is the availability of the market? Or is the availability of enough educated people? What do you think is most important? Uh, maybe I'll start with Cindy. I think the market starts with the demand uh, eventually. So that would be the most important one. And that should not be ignored also by the investors that sometimes have a very much technology-focused mindset. Shivang, can you also answer the question? Yes, uh, I'm with Cindy on this. Uh, for me, absolutely the market. I think if the market is not there, uh, investors and capital will very soon disappear. So investors, they put their money on where, you know, we are solving a real uh, problem uh, and for, uh, for stuff for which there is a demand. Okay, wonderful. Actually, we don't have t you know, time left for, for the other panelists. Thank you, everybody, for being here. We really enjoyed your, uh, your contributions. I'd like to also bring, uh, tell you as a final thing, this one, uh, this segment was brought to you by FarmTech Society, uh, Industry Association for the Indoor uh, Agriculture uh, Community. Please look at our website, join us and become a member. Thank you much for your interest and we'll see you next time. Thank you.